morning, we have been looking at Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And so that's where we're going to be this morning. If you've got your Bibles, go to Ephesians chapter 6. Um, and it is, like I said, it's the, it's the passage on parenting or, or children and parents. And um, so that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. Last week, we talked about marriage. And so as a transition from marriage to parenting, um, I pulled some quotes from some, from some children who were asked about marriage. Um, I'm kind of a sucker for kids' quotes, all right? Alan, age 10, was asked, how do you decide whom to marry? And he says, well, you got to find someone who, look, who likes the same stuff. Like, if you like sports, she should like it that you like sports, and she should keep the chips and dip coming. <laughs> Kristen, age 10, well, no one really decides before they grow up who they're going to marry. God decides it all way before. And then you get to find out later who you're stuck with. <laughs> when asked, what do you think your mom and dad have in common... Lori, age eight, said, both don't want any more kids. <laughs> when asked, when is it okay to kiss someone, Pam, age seven, says, when they're rich. <laughs> Kurt, age seven, said, well, the law says you have to be 18, so I wouldn't want to mess with that. <laughs> Ricky, age 10, was asked, how would you make a marriage work? He says, you tell your wife she looks pretty even if she looks like a truck. <laughs> One comedian said, six million books have been written on parenting, and yet it remains a dark planet no one knows anything about. Feels that way, doesn't it? So not everyone has the same reaction when they hear the words mom and dad, there are those who think of their parents fondly, uh, memories of their childhood. Those are fond memories. There are also those that have very sad memories when they think about childhood. In fact, childhood is something that, that tears lie close to the surface as they, as they think about their parents. A relationship that a child has with their parents. It can be a blessing, it can be a wonderful thing, it can, it can um, come with lots of baggage and issues as well. And I realize that this morning I'm going to be talking about um, children obeying your parents, and for many of you, your children have grown and left the house, or your children are over in the other room, and you're thinking, I should have brought them over here, they could heard the pastor say, obey. But I want to talk to you as parents this morning and as grandparents or future grandparents or future parents. See, the truth is, parenting can be lonely business. You love your child with all your breath, and at the same time, you wonder what kind of damage that you might be doing. Am I doing it right? I know that I have found myself often just making it up as I go, trying to sound as confident as I can so my children don't see through me. 
And there's weight that you carry around as a parent. There's the weight of comparison. When you look around and you seemingly see all the other parents doing it better than you're doing it. Occasionally, you might find one doing it worse than you and brings you comfort. There's embarrassment. Not necessarily of your children, but what they imagine their child's behavior may say about them. I know you've been in a supermarket or Walmart or something like that, and you've seen a kid have a meltdown, and you can just see the, the dying inside that's taking place on the, on the mom or the dad's face. And you wonder what everyone thinks about me. There's also failure. It's not hard to begin the day as a rock star and end the day in despair. I'm going to say a word or two at the end about if your children have gone and, um, and the challenges that come with adult children. For a little while, though, I want to focus on children that are in the home or, or grandchildren that you're watching raise. See, parents need the church. And as the church, we want we want to do a great job caring for parents, showing them grace and love for their children. That's why we talk so much about, man, we would love for you to serve in our children's ministry. We would love for you to step in and be an adult that loves Jesus and would love someone's child. That that is so important in the life of our children, so important in the life of our church. I grew up in a single-parent home. And I'll tell you, my mom would say she wouldn't have made it without, you know, without the church, although I, I didn't love the church. You've heard me tell you about that. But what we did have were there were other adults in our life that cared for us. I had some young life leaders that pursued me and cared for me when I wasn't able to hear my mother's voice anymore. And my mother was amazing. But she'd be the first to tell you she, she didn't do it alone. As a new parent, Leslie and I, we found ourselves, and Maggie was two weeks old, we moved off um, to another state. Uh, been married two years and been parents two weeks. Which, if you're wondering, is that a good idea? Probably not the best idea, but it's what we were. We had this little baby. Leslie was tell you she was in a fog, you know. I mean, you, you just are after you have a, have a little child. But I'll tell you, if it weren't for Kathy, this woman that Leslie met, she was taking Catherine out. It was a nice day. They were going to, went over to a little school, and were, they were playing on the playground. And this woman, Kathy, was taking a walk and decided to take interest and Leslie and Catherine and struck up a friendship and invited her to a Bible study and called her every week and prayed for her. And I'll tell you, we wouldn't have made it without Kathy. We were in seminary. We wouldn't have made it without our church, Richland Bible Fellowship. And I can tell you, 15 years ago when we moved here and my kids were still in elementary school and Catherine wasn't even walking yet, 
we wouldn't have made it without this church. And so it is a lonely business, and you cannot do it all alone. It's what, it's what we have here in the church. You look around this room, and you have men and women and parents and grandparents at all stages. And you can learn from the things they've done well and learn from the things they wish they hadn't done. And we all need that. See, the truth is there are no perfect parents. Good parents, even according to God's standards, are flawed. Just as your parents were before you. Even dishonorable parents have moments and periods where they truly love their kids and seek their best interest. And so instead of the Bible, instead of sort of drawing this line between honorable parents and and dishonorable parents, the Bible, instead what it does is it communicates these principles of parenting. And they're not all found in one place, but they're scattered throughout all of Scripture. And they show us, they light the way for us as parents. That that the impact that we can have when we apply or we don't apply these principles. And this morning, I want to look at a few principles from Ephesians chapter 6. This evening and next Sunday night, we'll survey some more of what the Bible has to say. Here is what the text says this morning, four verses And then a parallel can be found over in Colossians chapter 3, 20 and 21 that is a summary of what Paul writes here. This is what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, beginning verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. That it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The word fathers there, just so you know, is in the plural. It can be literally plural to the fathers. It also, the way that word's used, it can mean parents. And it may be that Paul chose that word because he means parents, but was looking at the dads. He's talking about this family relationship. You remember last week when we talked about marriage, we said you got to go all the way back to find the controlling verb. The controlling verb talks about us being filled with the Spirit. And as believers being filled with the Spirit, we can't do marriage without being filled with the Spirit. We can't do parenting without being filled with the Spirit. And I would say, really can't be obedient children like God has designed for us to be without being filled with the Spirit. But we'll talk about that later. Verses 2 and 3, just so you know, they come from Exodus chapter 20, also Deuteronomy chapter 5. It's the fifth of the Ten Commandments given at Mount Sinai. And when you go back, you realize the commandment's not actually given. Initially, it wasn't honor your father and mother. That wasn't put there for children. It was necessarily um, given, spoken to adults at the time. It certainly applies. Paul's applying it to young children. He also means all of us who are children that have parents alive and how we honor them. Paul's address here, the fact that he's even speaking to children at all, I want you to hear that's radical. It is a radical dignity that Paul is bestowing upon children, the children that we find 
in the church. That they're going to be part of the solution. They're going to be part of consciously, willingly, volitionally creating and, and shaping this culture of, of grace called the church. And so he's going to speak directly to them because they are as important as the parents, as the fathers in this culture being shaped. See, there's a time limit. One of the things you can say, there's a time limit on obeying parents. There's an appropriate season of life. There is no time limit on honoring your father and your mother. Obey your parents. When children are addressed in Scripture, it is always with the command to obey. It is always obedience that is spoken of. The word literally means to under your, under your hearing, to, 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 to have the children under your hearing, that they would listen to you when you speak. It's the same word that's used when it describes Jesus combing the wind and the waves. They obeyed him. Or the evil spirits that Jesus encountered, they obeyed Jesus. When you speak... Your children should obey. And not merely out of fear, and not just because you're bigger and you're stronger. Their obedience would come out of love and security. Listen to how Jesus talks about it in John 14, 21. Whoever hears my commands and keeps them obeys me. He, and then he describes it. So, so if you obey me, he says, he, well, he's the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. That obedience and love go hand in hand. It's two, it speaks to the two basic needs that your kids have. They need for you to love them. They need for you to set boundaries. They need for you to love them. So you meet their physical needs. You meet their emotional needs. All this love that you have for your children is unconditional. That they express this need in their behavior, whether it's good or bad. They also need boundaries. It creates security. It provides protection. I remember when Maggie was born, you know, one of the things they, the nurse taught us at the, at the hospital was, you know, how to, how to swaddle the baby with her blanket, you know, how to wrap her up really tight. And that, you know, if the blanket come off and her arms were flailing, you know, I mean, she'd, she'd be restless, she'd cry, but, you know, you'd come in there and soothe and wrap that blanket tight. There was security, this boundary. Also provides protection. And, and I think children express their need for this security, these need for boundaries by testing the boundaries to find out if they're secure. You know, you go all the way back to the garden. God made clear his love for Adam and Eve and also made clear what the boundaries were. The obligation is not merely on the side of the child who must obey, but also on the side of the parent who has to enforce the obedience. There's a story of a 16-year-old, and um, but more than anything else, he wanted to to drive, be able to drive, and, and uh, he'd gone through the driver training, got his license, but uh, didn't have a car, and so he was really 
you know, wanted to borrow his dad's car, take it out. And, and the, the dad um, was negotiating the privilege of being able to take the, the car out. And he said, here's what I want you to do. There's some scripture here that I want you to memorize. There's, um, uh, we need, let's look at your next report card. I want to see your grades are good. You know, grades are up. And I want you to get a haircut. That's a bad battle to fight. But anyways, that's what the dad said. He says, let's, let's check those out. Next three weeks, let's make sure you're on track. Then privilege of the car. So a few weeks go by. The son memorizes the scripture. Port card comes back. It looks great. Um, everything had been happening. So, you know, so showed his report card. Is the dad says, "That's I'm so proud of you. Um, you worked hard." And I've noticed, you know, the scripture memory is good. Everything's happened except you haven't gotten a haircut. And the boy said, "Dad, I, listen, I've been reading about Samson and Absalom. Both of them have long hair. And in fact." I asked the pastor about it, and he said most of the men in the Bible had long hair. Likely Jesus had long hair too. To which the dad replied, that may be true, but Jesus walked everywhere he went. <laughs> that was the negotiation. Whether good or bad, you got to follow through. Chip Ingram said, the number one problem teaching kids obedience is that when they're, real, they, when they're real small, we talk too much. And then when they get older in their teens, we talk too little. Well, he qualifies this by saying, look, all of this, is, you know, in, in the Lord, in everything is the way he says it in Colossians. O obedience is in the, in the Lord, it's for, for the sake of the Lord, in the name of the Lord, that, that obedience transcends just, hey, you obeying your father, you obeying your mother. In doing that, it's an obedience to God, for this is right. It's how it's supposed to be structured. I mean, you go all the way back to Genesis 2 and Genesis 3 and Genesis 4. This is a building block of culture, of society. And more is said about a relationship that one has with parents and parents with children than, than all that is said about how we relate to the government and how we live in society, that this becomes the building block block. Children need to know your love for them. They need to know there's boundaries. Clarity about those two things, your love and their boundaries, it lights the path for them to obedience. Discipleship Journal a couple of years ago, um, Peggy Willis wrote, she said, our kids need and want us to set boundaries. I know that statement might not jive with your experience in raising children. Most kids likely stop short of asking to be disciplined. Mine certainly never have asked me to say no to, to a request or withhold a privilege. And while probably they won't ask you for discipline, ask you for boundaries, it doesn't change the fact that they both need and want you to step up and set boundaries for them. A good friend of mine had relatively no boundaries in high school. 
We'd go to her house when we wanted to goof off and have fun because we knew we could get away with almost anything. The strange thing, at least for me at the time, was that she would often refuse to have us come over and demanded that if we were going to hang out, we needed to hang out at somebody else's house. She knew she would be subject to the rules at that house. She knew we wouldn't be able to sneak out at night. She knew this, and yet she wanted to have some boundaries so bad that she forced all of us to experience them as well. She always seemed like a different person around my parents, almost childlike. I've since come to understand the desperate need of every child to have someone love them and to set boundaries for them, boundaries that they'll enforce. Well, in 2 and 3, when he talks about honor, and he calls back to Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, the primary attitude of a, of a child's heart should be honor. Their behavior, they, you know, they, they need to obey. But what you're cultivating underneath that is honor. So, obedience is the action. action honor is the attitude. Obedience is for a time. Honor, that's going to define the relationship when, when authority has kind of run its course. So the opposite of honor you find throughout Scripture is, is to revile or to literally speak evil of. Now, for us as adult children, this is, this is important. Some adult children, some of you, some of me. You know, we have difficulty in this regard. What does it mean to honor a parent? Maybe, it, maybe a parent that, in your mind, doesn't deserve honor. Well, the Bible makes no qualification about it. Now, realize it's not affection necessarily. It's not obedience. doesn't mean boundaries as an adult child that you need to set with an adult parent aren't there. But it does mean to honor them. Honor them for no other reason if that that's how God has designed and brought you into this world. So pick out something something you can properly honor them. Honor means to respect, look for things to speak well about a parent, resist speaking dishonorably. Doesn't mean we don't confront them, doesn't mean we don't set boundaries, doesn't mean we don't forgive, but maybe a relationship's not restored, doesn't mean that. But we do it in a way that respects the place that God has placed them in our life, realizing God's the one who judges our parents. We're not to judge them. Learn from them. Make adjustments. Seek to honor what we can. If you're married, it applies to your in-laws. It is a terrible mistake to dishonor your in-laws. You disobey God when you do that, and more than that, you alienate your spouse discovered, and you probably have too. If your spouse, your wife wants to say something about her parents, keep your mouth shut. Listen. Don't join in. Well, first commandment with a promise, Paul points that out, um, and, and it's first commandment with a positive promise, let's say it that way that it may go well with you and live long in the land. And he's talking about um, with a lot of ideas about what he's talking about there, but likely what he means to apply is that, it, that there's blessing that comes with the obedience, not only that you show your parents, but the blessing that comes 
from having been a child that obeys their parents. We'll talk more about that tonight, actually. But look at verse 4. Let's, let's, let's drop to there. Fathers or parents. Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. I was driving here this morning. Catherine, my youngest, was riding with me, and um, we were on Broadway, and she DJs when we ride. Um, and I think, as I'm looking back at it, she's kind of sneaky. So we, she, was, she was playing cheap trick song, Surrender, that says, uh, Mama's all right, Daddy's all right. They've just been a little weird. And she's singing that and bobbing her head and looked over at her. It's like, this is a song about parents. She goes, yeah. And I said, well, I, that's funny. I'm talking about it this morning. She gave me that look like, oh, really? And then I said to her, I said, you know, my problem, my challenge this morning is to not say everything it is that I want to say, pull back on some of that and save some, you know, talk about some other things tonight and next week. She's bobbing her head and looks at me. We'll see how that goes. I need to show some restraint here, but I do want you to see some things. What's Paul have in mind when he says, don't provoke your children? In Colossians, he adds, lest they be discouraged. Maybe, maybe a good word is exacerb exacerbate. Exasperate, or either one, doesn't matter. It's not saying don't ever get angry with your kids. That's, that's impossible. If there's anybody that you love, you tell them things they don't want to hear. It means they're, they'll get angry with you. But if you're, in, if you're in a relationship that's grounded in love, it's okay. You've got to say things that even might make someone angry or you're a coward. What this means, though, is actually something far worse than that. It means literally that it is possible for fathers or for parents to create in their children some sort of settled anger, a, a disposition that's frustrated and resentful. It's possible because of your parenting, Paul is saying, is to raise angry children. Doesn't mean they won't get angry sometimes at you for doing right, but but our parenting shouldn't, it, it shouldn't create a settled anger and frustration and resentment. The authority that a father has is this should be clear recognition that the children, while they're expected to obey their parents and the Lord, they're persons in their own right. We don't manipulate them, we don't exploit them, we don't crush their spirit. We remember this is God's creation that we are a steward of. So then he turns around. Don't, don't provoke them to anger, but bring them up. It's this, it's this word. It's a, it's, a, it's a tender word. It means to nurture or to nourish. It's the, it's the same word he uses uh, to, to speak about husbands and wives, how husbands should, should nourish 
nurture their wives. Charles Spurgeon, he who thinks it's easy to bring up a family never had one of his own. A mother who trains her child to write need be wiser than Solomon, for his son turned out to be a fool. Bring them up in discipline and instruction of the Lord. Real quickly, discipline can go awry two ways. One, when discipline creates a dictatorship in your home. There's a provoking, an irritation, a, a nagging, a demeaning in the context of everyday life. It, that will lead to anger. Nothing's ever good enough. A father can never be pleased. Constantly pointing out what needs to be wrong. Strict control over everything. Decisions can come across unreasonable and arbitrary. Listen, I'll tell you, even a toddler can sense unfairness of a dictator. It reminds us we don't attack children at the place of character and attributes. You know, you're too, you're too silly. You're too loud. Well, that's a crazy laugh you've got. You're always lazy. We don't want to do that best also to drop the words never and always. You never clean up your room. You're always late for supper, whatever. It's a dictatorship. Anarchy looks at us no, you know, no control. And parents too permissive. The children are in control. You know, one writer said, you're either parenting your children or they're parenting you. On the other hand, if the only reason... Uh, to talk with them, to, to dialogue with them. You know, the only, only thing you want to do is reason with them. You frustrate them because you're forgetting they're not adults. Children need to know the presence of authority. There's this balance. Think about it this way. High fence and a big playground. But when you put a fence around the playground, the kids will use the whole playground. Clear boundaries, they provide the security. On one level, knowing that, listen, you know, whatever it is, you got to come home, you know, I remember when I was a kid, you got to come home when the street lights come on. Play till the street lights come on. Only set the rules that one, are important, and two, that you're going to enforce. A bunch of little rules that kids disregard and parents don't enforce undermine obedience at the places that it's important. Also, I'd say this. If there's no room for your kids to fail, playground's too small. We'll talk about it tonight, but you know, one of the things that I've always said is that you know, one of the hopes that I would have is that the biggest mistake maybe that my kids would make, they'd make it under my roof. So I'd be able to be there, walk them through it. I could do something about it. If you spend all your time trying to prevent your child from ever making a mistake or ever failing or ever doing anything wrong, you do not have them equipped to launch out into the world where they won't have you. 
I'm not saying I encouraged failure. In fact, the reality is my, my, you know, my principle about, you know, it's okay. I want them to fail. If they're going to fail big, fail at home. That got tested, and that's really hard. In fact, I had to tell the Lord, I, I like to say that. I don't really mean it. But I do. It's a place in which they can experience not only the security of your authority, but also you get to teach them grace. Sometimes the fences need to be moved. Playgrounds need to be bigger. My mom used to pray for me that, um, she, or all of us kids, or five of us, she'd pray, you know, she'd pray out loud. I pray that their sins would be found out. She said, stop praying that, Mom. <laughs> Had a next-door neighbor, Alan Duggar, got a slingshot for his birthday. We were trying to, trying to knock out the neighbor's skylight windows with him. That's what you do when you're 10. So I wonder if, that, wonder if this rock will go all the way. Turns out the slingshot worked. Bad day when the police come around to your house. Two big rules in our house that pretty much encompassed everything. I'll tell you what they are. My kids would be able to tell you too. Um, they revolve around disrespect and dishonesty. They know you do not disrespect your mother. They also know don't tell me a lie. Both of those they would find trouble with here and there. We, we owe God respect because he's the king. We owe others respect because he made them. He knows everything about them. Because of that, we don't disrespect them. And we're not dishonest. I try to tell my kids, my God knows you, knows everything about you. If you've blown it, say you blew it. It's good to teach our sons and daughters about confession. Confession gives way to forgiveness. I always say it. Truth's never going to be as bad as a lie. You get tested on that too. Instruction. Discipline and instruction. Exert influence on the mind. That's what it means. To counsel. To correct. In discipline, you're laying down the rules. When you're instructing, you're counseling, you're listening, you're loving, you're coaxing, you're bringing them along. Parents who counsel their kids, they give them time, they listen to them, touch, affection. It's not just training about life, although it includes that. It has to be training with regard to to who Christ is. In Ephesians 4, he's already told us, verses 20 and 21, we're commanded to learn Christ. And we should pass on what it is that we've learned. This is more than morality. It's not just behavior modification. It's not just, if you do the right things, we're not going to have a problem. No, I, what's going on at the level of a child's heart? Sometimes it's talking about the why we do the right things. 
when he's talking about bringing them up, I think Paul means to remind us that children are meant to launch. In fact, just the previous passage about marriage, he reminds us what is told to us in Genesis chapter 2. A man should leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. There is a day your children will grow up and launch out of your home. And we talk about, you know, hey, we, we want to prepare them for independence. And I know what it is that we say, what we mean when we say that. The truth is, we really want to prepare them for a greater dependence on the one who is greater. That they would transfer that dependence from parent to their heavenly father. See, the truth is, is that talk to a room like this, maybe some of you haven't done that, haven't embraced it. The, the, the preparation or the reality that there's a perseverance in the Christian life to live, be lived all the way to the end. Being reminded, listen, there's dangerous paths ahead of you as a believer. Christianity's not green pastures. Not always. Sometimes you think, well, just evergreener pastures on the way to more and more comfort. The Bible never promises that. We want to prepare our children to launch, and preparing our children to launch means they're going to launch into a broken world with a vicious enemy and a sinful heart. And there will be suffering because of those things. There will also be suffering that just comes because of who they are in Christ. It doesn't make us immune from the things of the world. We want to be able to walk through them with our faith intact. A lifelong faith. A faith for the long haul. That only happens with sustained sowing of God's Word into their life and into yours. We don't want to treat Christianity like an infomercial that they get 20 minutes on a Sunday morning. We want to, to walk in this 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, teaching them to do what to do with God's Word. We should be thinking about our children as they launch, giving them a vision to lead, to lead in the church, to lead in their family, to lead in the community, a vision to finish, that they would have an end in mind. Not just dabbling in the things of God, but that our life's rearranged with this end in mind. We want them to know the depth and the breadth of grace. All that comes before Ephesians 6, Ephesians 1 through 3, that their hope, their value, their worth, your love, it's not dependent upon them being a perfect child. Jesus was the perfect son. He was the perfect child. Hope is not in ultimately pleasing your parents, that our hope is in Jesus, the one whom God said, I am well pleased. 
And listen, hope's not being a perfect parent. We have the perfect parent. Our Father who art in heaven. And we don't hide from him because of our failures as a parent. We run to him because of his endless grace as the Father. Here are a few things. How to apply this. Remind your kids in the things you say and the things you do of your unconditional love for them. Secondly, I think you need to schedule time with your children. Time that they can count on. Get it on your calendar. The only thing, probably the only thing I would say that I've done well as a parent on purpose is that I've scheduled time with my kids. Take each one of them when they were in our home to breakfast some morning a week. They each had a morning. Then I'd take them to school and I'd usually tell people 95% of the conversations I had with my kids on those breakfast dates were, were what you would call insignificant, if you will. But the reality is 95% of the significant conversations I've had with my kids have been at breakfast. They'd each say the night before, breakfast date in the morning? Yes, we've been doing it for 12 years. Susanna Wesley, it's recorded, she had 19 children. None of them died as infants, but She'd spend, it's recorded, it's preserved that she'd spend an hour a week with each one of them. Her husband, for a period of time, was absent. He just left. They had a disagreement. He walks out, was gone for a couple of years. She writes him a letter. I'm a woman, but I'm also the mistress of a large family. And although the superior charge of the souls contained in it lies with you, Yet in your long absence, I cannot but look upon every soul you leave under my charge as a talent committed to me under a trust. I am not a man nor a minister. Yet as a mother, I felt I ought to do more than I had yet done. I resolved to begin with my own children, in which I observed the following method. I take such a portion of time as I can spare every night to discourse with each child apart. On Monday, I talked to Molly. On Tuesday, to, with Hetty. Wednesday with Nancy, Thursday with Jack, Friday with Patty, Saturday with Charles. One biographer commented this way, although she never preached a sermon or published a book or founded a church, she is known as the mother of Methodism. Why? Because two of her sons, John Wesley and Charles Wesley, as children, consciously or unconsciously, applied the example and teachings and circumstances of their home life. Schedule the time, invest in. The children need focused attention. Thirdly, they, where when they're talking, they know you're listening. Swindoll writes about a unusually busy period, you know, all these things, all these interruptions. He'd sit down at dinner, he wouldn't talk, he'd eat as fast as he could. And he says, I distinctly remember one supper, one evening. The words of our young daughter, Colleen, she wanted to tell me something important that had happened at school. And so she said, Daddy, I want to tell you something. 
And then I promise I'll tell you really fast. He said he almost died inside. He said, honey, you can tell me. You don't have to tell me really fast. Say it as slowly as you want. And he says, I'll never forget her answer. Then listen slowly. Three things done. Children need your, not only your forgiveness, they need to see you navigate your own failures. Forgiveness, okay? Forgiveness, that's the end of discipline, not warning. Sometimes we discipline, we go, okay, you got this, you understand this, this happens again. It's not the end. The end is, I know you blew it, you know you blew it. I forgive you. That's how it's end. But they also need to hear you say, when you need to say, I'm sorry. They don't need you to be perfect. They're just looking for you to be honest. Here's five magic words that we ought to find occasion to say to our children. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Meaningful touch. Listen, that's why little kids want to wrestle. Touch. Good. Meaningful. Healthy touch. Let your kids know you delight in them. They need your pleasure as much as they need your pride. Pride is attached to the big moments. So proud of you. Pleasure is delighting in who they are all the time. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Our kids need to hear that from us. Laugh with them, encourage them. Greatest things we can do is enjoy our kids, finding joy in who they are, their personalities, how God built them. I've said it often, I do mean it. I want to be like my kids someday when I grow up. Tell you about Jay and we'll close. I catch things about him here and there that I think, man, it's really like that about him. And it's good when I tell him. He has an attention to detail I'll never have. When he was little, Legos would be all over the floor. He'd sit for hours. Attention to detail. Building something. Loved it. Humor, he's funny. He's funnier than I ever am or will be. Funny like his mom. One of the things, I was reminded of it, I had a, was talking to Ray Martinez about it. One of the things he used to do when he was little, well, actually he did it all the way, actually he still does it if he's here, is if I'm talking to somebody, and it doesn't matter if the other person I'm talking to is crying their eyes out about something, my son will sneak up behind me and slap me on the butt and then sneak off. And he thinks that's hilarious. And it is most of the time. And he's bold. He's a bold kid. Always has been. Do your kids know? 
about them what brings you joy? They should. They need to know. Pray with your kids. Pray with them. About everything. 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 Pray with me. Father, I ask that you would encourage us this morning. I pray that you would draw us to your son. I pray you'd bring to our mind a the hope and the joy of of a life long with you. Father, realize in the midst of that, there's a bunch of failures and a bunch of stumbles and and each of them come with a fresh opportunity to know your grace and your mercy. So, Father, for those here this morning with little bitty kids and just starting out and find themselves frustrated, Father, I pray you would encourage them this morning. I pray they'd see these little little people through your eyes. Father, I pray they'd stumble upon some conversations, maybe even today with some of those further down the road that can provide encouragement. Father, for those that have Parenting looks like it's in the rearview mirror, and sometimes in the rearview mirror all we can see are the, the regrets or the failures. Father, I pray this morning that would, that would vanish away. What we'd see is your faithfulness and your love and your care for our kids, which is far greater than ours is. And that, Father, we would run headlong into your grace. Father, we're here, we're gathered, we're the church, and we confess we can't do this thing alone. And so, would you help us in the relationships that we need and the connections we need to make and the words of encouragement that we need to hear? Would you superintend that and would you open our eyes and ears to be able to see it and to hear it and step into it? Father, we trust you with all of these things. In the name of your son, Jesus, and by the power of your spirit.